0: This is how my guest on this week's show reveals that he recently survived cancer at the very beginning of his latest stand up special.
1: I went to therapy for the first time ever this week. Thank you, yes. Trying to stop touching kids. Uh, (laughs) I said I'm trying. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm never going to (laughs) stop. Give me them keys. (laughs) No, I went to therapy for the first time ever because I'm trying to process the fact that I had testicular cancer. Oh, you didn't know? You call yourself fans? I wasn't going to talk about it, but then my therapist told me to grow a
0: pair, so here we are. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was comedian Nimesh Patel from his new special, Lucky Lefty, or I Lost My Right Nut and All I Got Was This Stupid Special. Nimesh has written jokes for Chris Rock when he hosted the Oscars, helped Hasan Minhaj write his speech at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and spent one year as the first Indian American writer for Saturday Night Live, writing jokes for Colin Jost and Michael J on Weekend Update. But over the past couple of years, and especially with this excellent new special on YouTube, he has started to really blow up in his own right, with clips that regularly go viral on TikTok and Instagram. Just after we recorded this episode, he was named one of Variety's 10 comics to watch for 2023, which is always kind of a baffling list, but is apparently still a big deal. He also announced his first big national stand-up tour, which concludes later this year at the theater at Madison Square Garden. Nimesh and I spent a good deal of this conversation talking about how he turned his sudden cancer diagnosis into a full 45 minutes of comedy. But we also got into his time at SNL and his previous claim to fame as the comedian who got kicked off stage during a show at Columbia University for telling a joke about being black and gay that the student organizers felt crossed the line. That experience landed him an invite to talk about cancel culture on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show something he tells me he's very glad he declined. All right, let's get into it. Here's me with Nimesh Patel. Namesh, it's great to have you on the podcast. I just got to watch your new special, Lucky Lefty, and I thought it was really fantastic. Um, and I thought maybe we could just start by uh, having you explain the the significance of the title for anyone who, uh, who hasn't gotten a chance to see it yet.
1: Uh, well, the, the full title is Lucky Lefty or I Lost My Right Nut and All I Got Was This Stupid Special. <laughs> um, uh, if it isn't clear, uh, I lost my right nut through testicular cancer, not like some bike adventure um and uh the
0: the traditional way
1: yes 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 and uh i just thought you know naming it that was a way to uh just indicate subconsciously or consciously to whoever's going to be watching it that right away the band-aids ripped off there's no subtext when it comes to what the story is about it's not anything but that and also saying in a very irreverent way Like, this is it. This is what the whole shit is about. This is what the whole 45 minutes is about. Um, And I'm I'm treating with irreverence. So you should be able to laugh at it.
0: Yeah, I feel like there is a there's a tendency in some of these specials where people are dealing with difficult topics to kind of ease into it or or make the first half of the special a little like broader, sillier, and then like get into the heavy stuff. Um, But yeah, you didn't take that approach. You, You jump right in.
1: That was a conscious decision that was made about, you know, two months into actually working on this set when like the, for the first like month or two, I was being real kind of coy making it a reveal that there can't, it was, it was, I had a cancer diagnosis and, uh, that always felt like it sucked the, A, it sucked the air out of the room, made it not fun. Um, and B like, there was this like buildup that I didn't like, uh, for the first like 10 minutes of the set where I was just, like. I felt emotionally manipulative of the audience and I didn't, I wasn't enjoying it. Uh, and I was like, who fuck cares? <laughs> like I wanted it <laughs> to be as quick as it was for me to find out that I had it, uh, uh, for the audience to find out that I had it. And I found that when I did that, once it was like Band-Aid was ripped off, they were even more willing to laugh because they knew I was laughing at it kind of immediately. You know? I am cancer free, by the way. Thank you for asking. <laughs> You're clapping, but no one actually cares about testicular cancer. You see, women with breast cancer, you get a march, you get pink ribbons, NFL athletes wear pink cleats on certain game days. You'll never see a WNBA player with a blue ball sack on her shoulder. (laughs) Stay strong, brother. That's why I'm starting a testicle festival. All round shaped foods. We'll have a sack race. That's all I got so far. I don't know where. <laughs> I'm being quite glib about the whole thing, but don't get me wrong. I'm very grateful, you know, A, that I survived, and B, that I've been able to process it using laughs. My sister said, cancer could not have happened to a better guy.
0: <laughs> when did you first know that this was something you were definitely going to talk about on stage? How quickly after you got this news did you know that this would be?
1: Immediately. The night of, uh, like the night I went to the hospital, um, I knew it was going to be something uh, uh, because like having done comedy for now almost 14 years, you kind of get an understanding of when something's happening to you that you should be taking notes about. And even still, like I try to instill a practice at the beginning of every year, I try to have this practice of like log every day, like at least something, write something down about what happened during the day because you never know what comedy will come out of it. And I was luckily at the beginning of this year or last year at this time, like, uh, at that time I was already, I was in that mindset. Like my resolution hadn't like fallen off a cliff, you know? Uh, and so I was already taking notes about everything and this was just like, oh yeah, I I should be taking notes about all this that's happening. There's something funny every minute along the way. And so, uh, I knew almost right away that it was something was happening that was going to be fun to talk about. I did not know it was going to turn into a 45 minute thing. I thought it was going to be something, you know, like a joke or a bit rather than a a full on story. But that's what happened.
0: Do you remember the first joke or bit or, or funny thing that you thought of around this? There was a lot
1: that happened, uh, throughout. Uh, the funniest thing was when my balls got shaved, like that was just like the climax <laughs> of the whole, uh, <laughs> of the whole saga really. Uh, because that was like a culmination of, you know, me being in a very uncomfortable situation, not liking healthcare as it is. And then being in a situation where a nursing shortage affected me directly because a guy who wasn't supposed to be shaving my balls, cause that wasn't, what he was typically supposed to be doing was assigned to do that. And then on top of <laughs> that, that wasn't supposed to happen then anyway. Um, that was the first, you know, I, the whole, I had surgery on like uh, the beginning of February when within 10 days I was on stage. And that was the, the story I was getting at that. That was like the the thing I was trying to chip away at first, because I knew that was the funniest thing that had happened. But like even the night of when I was in the hospital getting Right before I was discharged after getting the ultrasound, I remember thinking like the, the discharge person was like, so how you doing, man? I was just like, my balls hurt, Mike. And like, he <laughs> laughed <laughs> and I was like, yeah, so like every, everything was happening. It was, I was just in like a look at it is funny mindset. And uh, yeah, that was it. You know, like I can't, I can't recall exactly, specifically what it was, but the ball shaving thing was probably the first thing I started working on for real. <laughs> I'm laying there on the gurney and in comes a Filipino man with scrubs on. The nurse, he's got a pair of clippers on him. The shit you get fades with. And I know what's about to happen, so I'm like, bro, why are you smiling? He says, lift your gown and spread your legs. I'm like, are we at prom? All right. Then without asking, he just starts shaving my balls. But only the right side. It's the weirdest yin yang you've ever seen. And I'm laying there thinking, you know, I always assumed my first gay experience would involve shrimps. I'm not being manscaped by Manny Pacquiao over here. And it's very uncomfortable, okay? This dude is flicking my dick around like a Catholic priest. You know, it's up, down, left, right. I'm an altar
0: boy. You do have a pretty unique perspective on cancer. You talk about how I think it was only a few days between getting finding out that you had cancer and being cancer free, um which is something that could that could only happen in certain very specific scenarios. Do you think that helped as well sort of keep it funny for you? You know, you didn't have to kind of you went through probably a lot of emotional uh roller coasters in that few days, but but not the way someone, you know, goes for for years with this stuff.
1: Honestly, you know, Uh, I'll have to disagree in the emotional roller coaster part. Like I'm a, uh, a solutions oriented person. Um, much to the chagrin of my wife, (laughs) but like like, when it, when I got the call, my brain did not go like, Oh my God, what was me kind of maybe subconsciously I was feeling some kind of denial, but immediate it was like, okay, I have to solve this problem. And, uh, what do I have to do to, to make sure that this goes as quickly and smoothly as possible? And, and, and I also was aware that everyone around me is pretty emotional. And so I had to be this kind of, uh, stoic I'm not trying to toot my own horn. It was just like, I, I had to be the guy that was like rational in the situation because a, it was happening to me, uh, and be like, I didn't feel like if I projected a sense of worry or anything that it was going to be helpful in the situation to people around me. But, you know, that being said, like everyone around me was very like supportive and calm and, and I, maybe they took that from me or they were trying to project that for me. But either way, like there was never a sense of emotion. <laughs> it was never like an <laughs> yeah. emotional thing. It was just like bang, 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 bang. And to answer your question, yes, I think the the speed with which it all happened definitely Played into the lack of emotion because I didn't have time to fully sit and like, 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 man, what the fuck is going on? Like, uh, I never had that time.
0: And you said you were back on stage, you know, what, 10 days later or something. What were those first shows? Like, were you talking about it immediately on stage?
1: I was talking about it immediately, you know, the great Hannibal Burris once told me you got to talk about it right when it happens. Uh, you got to get on stage right away, even if you don't have shit written, just get on stage right away. Lucky for me, like, again, like I said earlier, I was taking notes every day, like what is happening. And so uh, when I got on stage at the Cellar, it was a Friday night, I believe, um, uh, a few days after surgery. And I just had, you know, my, my phone on me. Um, but like, I don't remember looking at it because I, everything was just so fresh. Like I, I, I was looking at it from, uh, uh, what do I want to talk about more? And then whatever hit me, I just, I just said, um, and that's, you know, that first time I talked about it, I did the, uh, I ripped the bandit off kind of like right away. Um, and then like, I kind of wavered from that strategy, uh, to make it like a reveal and then, and then went back to like the initial like, oh, yeah, uh, by the way, I had cancer. It was almost like that kind of like TIG thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. She, I was just where, thinking of that. Yeah, where she kind of, oh, I had cancer. But like that was her, those, I think those were her fans or like people who knew her kind of already. I, I don't recall the exact circumstances in which she said that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was at um, Largo. So I think it was probably people who were pretty familiar with her and, and were there to see her. But these were you were doing it in front of people who may or may not have known who you were.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I was at the cellar. I think I was like third or fourth on the Friday night lineup. Uh the you know, like the hottest show, eight forty five McDougal Street Friday night, like the prime and third, I think so, like the prime time spot. Um and so the crowd was hot and I was also just like very loose. I hadn't been on stage in like two weeks. I'd just come off a tour. Um, I just beat cancer so I was feeling pretty good about myself <laughs> and uh, what kind of reaction uh,
0: did you get from that first time that you said I have I have cancer or I just beat cancer
1: People were just people like people were happy and supportive uh, I remember I remember saying like oh I had cancer people like uh, uh, I I think the line was, um yeah i had testicular cancer and then uh someone was like <gasps> like i remember hearing like a gasp or some shit like yeah i didn't i didn't know it was what i was gonna talk about either you know <laughs> and then uh, and that once that started once that laugh started rolling i'm fine i said i was fine like once people were clear i was like this I, and i think comedy on comedy audiences especially at the cellar are a bit more savvy about comedy and like the process of w- what it is to talk about something and so i benefited from that and uh uh, I, just, I remember being like, all right, my time's up. Uh, there's a lot more to that story, obviously, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I got I only have 15 minutes, so I got to go, but thank you very much. And I got, that was like my first catharsis of like, oh, finally, this is going to be something awesome to talk about. And I did like 15 minutes and it felt like I hadn't said anything, but I had told a good part of the story, you know?
0: That must be a good feeling, yeah. Oh, it was awesome. Um, you also talk in the special a little bit about how uh, people have been making jokes about, balls for ages and they're sort of like it's sort of a cliche kind of joke uh you know topic um so how did you think about approaching it in a different way or or being able to say something new that that hadn't been said before
1: well i think going in like i i definitely googled who had cancer <laughs> what famous people had cancer and i think tom green was one of them so i made well, sure yeah. I, I made I, I a made lot sure of jokes. I stayed, yeah i made sure i stayed away from anything he i didn't watch it anything that he did just to make sure i didn't touch on anything um but i also knew that uh i'm a, a goofy silly person at, at heart and uh the temptation to like make as many ball puns was definitely present <laughs> it was definitely like let's see how many i can put into one like opening line and, but yeah you know, i fought that uh, <laughs> uh successfully i think and the challenge was really how do i outside of just making the easy dick and ball jokes like how do I say something that conveys feelings that I was having you know that wasn't necessarily emotions but I was thinking like how does this impact my ability to have kids like how does this impact my masculinity how how do I make this as funny as possible and as silly as possible and as irreverent as possible while also staying true to uh, uh making sure that this quote unquote, help somebody or made like impact somebody in a way outside of just like making them laugh, you know?
0: I love that line about, uh, how they removed your toxic masculinity.
1: Oh, thank you, man. They, yeah. That people slept on that line. I like that line a lot, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh I, I said it very early in the, in the, in the, in the set. So maybe that's why, but if you paid attention, that was a, that was a good one. Cause the ball had cancer. It was toxic. Then Thank you. <laughs>
0: um, we also get to see in the special your impressions of uh, Hassan Minhaj and Aziz Ansari as sort of the, uh, the angel and devil on your shoulders. Uh, how did you, how'd you come up with that idea?
1: Uh, it was, shout out to Hassan and Aziz. Um, <laughs> it was just like, I don't know how it hit me, but there was, a, there was in the conversation with the doctor about uh, um, getting the blood work. Like, I did have in my head, like, you know, is this guy just running tests for no goddamn reason? And when I first started talking about it, I was like, I was the one saying, I know about healthcare. Uh, these are the things that are fucked up in healthcare. And that was coming off as kind of preachy and like pedantic almost.
0: <laughs> but then when you put it in Austin's voice, it's- uh, When I put fits. it in Austin's
1: voice, <laughs> it, because a I, I Patriot, you know, that was his thing for that. And it felt like, an opportune moment to be like, you know what? Like, this is, this is my friend. This is like his wheelhouse, shout out to him. And he would be the type, it, and then I inverted it because I wanted him to call me a pussy little bitch. You know, like that, like that, that kind of saves it. Um, and then the Aziz part just came kind of naturally. It was like, you got to get help. Who's the best to say it. And <laughs> I ran it by Aziz in London in September and he fucking loved it. So I was like, okay, cool. We good. I'm like, do I need this blood work? On my left shoulder, pops up Indian angel, Hussan Minhaj. And he starts spitting facts about the healthcare system. It's like, every year. Americans spend a hundred billion dollars on medical tests they don't need. Nimesh, do you really need this test? Or are you a pussy little bitch? Goddamn, Hassan, relax, bro. All right, man, put the PowerPoint away. I'm not going to get this test. But then my right shoulder pops up Indian Angel Azizan. Sorry. He's like, nah, man, treat yourself. I'm like you right, Aziz.
0: Yeah, well, your impression of uh Hasan is is pretty spot on. You can tell you you two have spent <laughs> some time together.
1: For sure, for sure.
0: Another line that I love from the special that sort of works as a, a pivot towards the end is uh you gotta laugh, otherwise you turn into Will Smith. Ah, uh, thank you. Um, which uh kind of pivots into you talking about the uh Oscar slap and everything with with Chris Rock. I know you you and Chris Rock go back pretty far. Online somewhere it says mm-hmm. that you were uh, discovered by Chris Rock. I don't know what that means, but uh, do you do you stand by that or is that a uh, is that fake news?
1: Well, disco- discovered uh, I think is an easy word for it because it, it kind of encapsulates you know how we first started working together. He discovered me for himself. Uh, <laughs> if, if that clears things up, because uh, he had no idea who I was when we met um that was in 2015 i just myself mike denny uh, uh, a comedian friend of ours and a guy named michael che uh we used to run a show together called broken comedy uh and chris came to that show to watch langston kerman chris was late langston couldn't go up i got wind chris was coming i was like i'm going up (laughs) and uh i had like one of these blackout sets and chris told me i was funny afterwards like that's crazy few months later, I'm writing for the Oscars for him. And then, you know, we stayed in touch and like I've worked with him on on some other stuff. And whenever we see each other, it's always, it's always very friendly and fun. Um, but that like that bit kind of happened a month after the slap happened, you know, like I was on stage in Dallas. It's kind of funny. Where were you when Chris Rock got slapped? I was, (laughs) I, (laughs) I, I was on stage. I was, I was in the green room at the Addison Improv in Dallas, Texas. Um, still figuring out what I was going to talk about, my balls and all that. And uh, I was waiting to go on. I was watching the Oscars because I knew Chris was going to be doing something. And uh, when I was watching, I was like, "That's there's no fucking way that that just happened." And then
0: I think that was what we all thought, yeah.
1: And, and then having seen like them like not know what to do uh like in the moment the academy not know what to do I was like oh shit that was real that was not a planned thing <laughs> so when I went on stage that night I was like I cannot I just saw like my uncle slap my other uncle like these are people I, I love and admire well that's um, funny
0: too the people in the crowd probably hadn't seen it
1: yeah no they had no idea they were all watching me and so yeah, I had to, they didn't know
0: what you were talking about They had
1: no idea and uh uh when when I was like Everyone obviously had a take on the whole situation, like comics, everyone had. So I kind of let it marinate in me for a little bit. And then when it all came back around, like a few months later when I got married and my sister-in-law and everyone else decided to take shots at me at the wedding when they were doing their speeches. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. I, I get it. You have. I have to laugh, otherwise I'm gonna be pissed off and fucking go hit somebody. <laughs> and that kind of, it just kind of all coalesced in that way. It was. Uh, you
0: knew. What, you knew what it was like to be Will Smith.
1: Yeah, it was. It was fun. It was. It was a beautiful thing to have happen. And and kind of, like I look back at the past year, like everything that was supposed to happen was kind of very serendipitous and destiny. You know, like I try to learn in everything that had happened, and uh, I managed to do so. I think. You got to laugh, otherwise you turn into Will Smith, you know? (laughs) Look, I know Chris said enough about Will Smith, so I won't say too much more, but that was not a slap-worthy joke. I've been to the Oscars. My first writing job ever was the 2016 Oscars for Chris Rock. I've been in that writer's room. I know the mean shit that definitely could have been said. I know if I was there last year, I definitely would have said something like, Jada's head looks like Nimesh Patel's ball sack after surgery. You know? (laughs) I would have earned the slap is all I'm saying.
0: What did you think about how Chris handled it in his live special?
1: I wish he said more, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like. Uh, uh, he really
0: waited till the end.
1: Yeah, I mean. That, that must was, have been uh, deliberate. That was, that was the smart thing to do, I think, from a comics perspective. But I don't know. We I debated back and forth with other comics. like, I, And I haven't really fully decided on what way to do it. You know, it's like, do you open with the thing that's the elephant in the room or do you wait? Um, and obviously he waited, uh, and that might've been just so, you know, people stay watching cause everyone knew he was going to be talking about it. And that might've yeah, been just, I a, think so. A, yeah, it might've just been a decision, um, uh, that was made, you know, with analytics in mind. Um, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, I think Chris is obviously the best decision maker when it comes to Chris. And so, uh, all more power to him. I just wish, like, I wish he said more, um, uh, but maybe, you know, that seems like a very traumatic thing to have gone through. So maybe he hasn't fully processed it and it'll come out in other ways. And yeah, I was surprised I how,
0: how to... yeah, how raw it still felt like it was for him. You know, I, yeah, I think you could you could have imagined him doing a whole special about it in some ways and being having more distance from it. But it really felt pretty immediate still.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I think, uh, uh, again, like I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think there's probably a, there's a, a, a billion years of stuff you could talk about within those like three minutes of of witnessing what happened Um, uh, everything everything and everything and i think chris said it as concisely as possible and as he wanted to talk about it and i get the instinct of putting something to rest you know like that's why thank you john that's why lucky lefty is what it is like it's a 45 minute i'm never going to talk about it again it's done i've said everything i wanted to say we out. Read what you want from it. Don't read what you want from it on to the next. And and that I applaud Chris for because that's, I think, a, a smart way to approach something like that, that you either feel very comfortable talking about with people not on stage or you don't want to talk about it anymore. And I know that I don't want any particular one thing to define me. And um, I'm not saying the slap defines Chris, obviously not. But I know from that, like, fuck that. Like, that's done. That's the past. Let's keep going forward, you know?
0: Yeah, I'd say the slap doesn't define Chris, but it might define Will Smith now. Oh
1: yeah, it's uh, it's definitely tarnished the legacy for sure. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, I I loved Will Smith.
0: So did the did the Michael Che connection lead you to SNL?
1: Oh, for sure. You know, uh, you know that's uh, one of my closest friends. Um, and you know, we started comedy together. And when he got update, when he got Weekend Update, um. I think his second year, uh, uh, as an anchor, he hired me, um, to help, you know, write jokes and, and put together, um, his stand-up stuff for that show. Uh, it was a, I re- still remember texting him like, uh, when he texted me, I got the job being like, uh, I'll, I'll believe you when I get to meet Lorne. And, and he was like, oh, you think you get to meet Lorne? <laughs> <laughs> did did <laughs> and, uh, you ever meet Lorne? Uh, no. I saw no. him like twice. <laughs> you were there uh, for a year. I was there for, well, updates kind of siloed, you know, it's, it, it's a different part of the show. And, uh, uh, I saw him like twice the whole time I was there. That's it was hilarious. Pretty funny. What yeah. did you
0: have to do to get hired? Did, did Shay just, uh, bring you on or did you have to like, audition or write something or or how did it work
1: oh no i i I think at that point you know uh mike was pretty ingrained in the in the culture there and so it was like if you know if mike said he needed somebody it was like it was like that um so yeah i mean i submitted a pack i've submitted packets like every year uh but those always got rejected (laughs) but when uh when the weekend update anchor is like hey i need I, i would like this guy to help me write for him uh, for, for me, uh, it kind of carries some weight.
0: So it was, a, it was a job that you had thought about a lot or something that you really wanted before then?
1: I wanted to write at the show, for sure. Uh, I definitely wanted to write on SNL. It was never like, when I started comedy, it wasn't like, I gotta write on that show kind of thing. Like I didn't grow up watching the show. I obviously knew some episodes of some characters and all that, but I wasn't one of these. I've been watching SNL since I was seven. I would stay up late and my parents would go to bed and be like, don't let's stay up too late. No, it was definitely never anything like that. It was just like, oh, this is uh, a very cool job. It'd be amazing to have. Um, And even though I was there for a season, I can say wholeheartedly it's definitely one of the best jobs on the planet. Uh, Yeah.
0: I mean, it's, it's it's interesting. Like, Talking about how a Weekend Update is so separate because people who are in the cast and even you know writers who write sketches talk a lot about the pressure of getting something on and and how you know cutthroat it can be. But I imagine that it was different for you because you're just trying to you know you're trying to get jokes on, but it's not like you have you know what you're doing that week. I guess is the, well, the difference. That's
1: the, uh, well, in that case, you're in 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 that statement, you are incorrect. Uh, <laughs> in that in that you know I was there. The first full year of Donald Trump's presidency, and so as Chase so eloquently put it, it was like drinking from a fire hose. Like Monday, Monday he you know was fucking a porn star. Saturday morning he was throwing paper towels at Puerto Ricans. You know it was like it was like what the fuck was going on? So uh, it, no one's talking about the porn star by the time you guys are by the time you guys are on. Exactly, you know, and, and so you know what you're doing in the sense you are writing jokes. Uh, but you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And the only reason people are tuning in is to see what crazy shit you have to say about the even crazier shit that happened. You know, and it was it was uh it was an interesting time to write, you know, like my brain was flooded with too much news. It definitely broke my brain from a I hate the news perspective, you know. Um and at the same time, it's a much smaller target. You know, it's it's a twelve to fifteen minute second. 10 to 15 minute segment of the show of which, you know, two or three acts of the, of update with is, you know, or character that's, you know, Keenan doing, you know, something and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Keenan's got the space. So you're aiming at something a lot smaller. Um, So in that sense, it, it was just as difficult getting jokes in and getting takes in, in relation to like what the sketch people would be doing. Granted, I don't know fully how the sketch side worked. Uh, but yeah, like from my perspective, it was, and I'm, uh, I'm not competing with, but you know, the fellow joke writers are, you know, five, 10 year people who are like, who understand how to do it, know it right away and know the voices of the, of the anchors just as well, if not better than, uh, someone who came up with one of them.
0: I assume it was not your decision to leave after one season.
1: That that is a very safe assumption yes <laughs> how
0: did you how did you feel about it uh, you know were you was there any sense of relief to it or were you disappointed or did you want to keep I, doing it that's
1: an interesting interesting way to think about it yes I mean it was uh, a, a huge disappointment to not come back you know I, I definitely wanted to come back and uh, it was you know uh, a loss that um, I'm still just like man I it took me a a long time to be grateful for having had the opportunity in the first place. That being said, it was a lot of pressure uh, to to work there. I would do it all again in a heartbeat. Again, like one of the best jobs on the planet. Granted, I was only there for a year, so maybe at like year three, you're like, fuck this place, but I don't know that. The people that I've known there have stayed there and uh, are doing very well there. So yes, huge disappointment. I love the show. I'd love to go back. Uh, But in the time, like again, like, it seems like every time something crazy happens to me like that, like something else is there to take my mind off it and make me have to process something else. Like the show ended, like the show ended for me. I got word, I think like in July something. The day I got word, I had to go run my set for my first late night set, Seth Myers. like three hours later, you know, for the booker. And I was like, I had no time to even think I had to get back on stage and be like, okay, I got to do these five minutes for, Uh, Seth and and that weekend I was just running the set over and over Tuesday uh, after I got word I did Seth Meyers Wednesday or Tuesday or Wednesday and then the next day the very next day I had to fly to Winnipeg to headline and so I was like immediately out on the road um, like reminding myself oh yeah I'm funny I got stand-up to do I got an hour to build and I can fuck around with crowds and so that really helped kind of process the whole thing and then I had, you know, a lot more time after that to kind of have it be a soft landing. Um, and then uh, that was it, you know. There was definitely, like, uh, angst about not having a full-time day job anymore. But it was just like, okay, well, I, now i got to make my own way again. i got to keep doing stand-up and get back on the road, you know.
0: Coming up. Nimesh looks back on what it was like to go viral for being kicked off stage at Columbia in 2018 and why he strongly resisted becoming a spokesperson for canceled comedians. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? What was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, Darcy Cardin, and her favorite comedian friends, as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you will learn that's the science term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders How the hell did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with other comedians who were recently featured on Variety's 10 Comics to Watch list, including Shang Wang, Moses Storm, Atsuko Okatsuka, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Nimesh Patel. I think it was around that time, uh, for better or worse, that you had your your big moment of viral fame at Columbia University. Um, for sure, which I know you've, you've talked about a lot. Um, but I had I remember hearing about it, but I had never watched it until this week. Um, when I was preparing for this, uh, so yeah, I mean. I, Can you kind of explain briefly what happened?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, If you haven't seen it, uh, I was at Columbia University uh, performing at the Asian American Alliance. Uh, About 20 minutes in, I said something that some of them found a a bit offensive. uh, uh, And uh, which, you know, at the time I never found offensive and still don't find offensive. And I think uh, if you were to ask those organizers if they find it offensive now, I think they may have changed their tune. Um, But, you know, they came on stage, kicked me off, um, cut my mic after asking me to make some closing remarks. And uh, that was it. Like, it was, again, like a three-minute thing that went kind of mega viral, but only because it was at Columbia University and they have a very big journalism program, and one of their graduates uh, read an article that was written by a a student there and then decided to, and once that person put a megaphone on it, it kind of took a life of its own, and people wanted to make me a martyr and say, like a liberal kid kicked off by a liberal school, like uh, the left eating their own, and all this kind of shit was going on. And even for like a week after, it wasn't a real story. And I was kind of really hoping it would just die. But then for what, somehow it started trending on Yahoo. And I was like, I remember getting a text from Lenny Marcus at like seven o'clock in the morning. Like Lenny Marcus, a great comedian, who texted me at like 7 a.m., like, hey, man, you're trending on Yahoo. I was like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a national story tucker carlson's emailing me i'm like bro i don't want to talk to you tucker i'm featured on breitbart like come on bro get the fuck like this face why was
0: why was tucker carlson emailing he wanted you to come on the show
1: they wanted me to talk about it on the show about uh cancel culture and uh and all that and i was kind of biding my time to uh i think rogan got word of it and uh uh he he sent me a text saying, hey man you gotta come talk about this and uh, I was like, yeah, for sure. Like if I was going to talk about it, it was going to be on the biggest platform possible. Um, and then I didn't want to talk about it at all. So I did the New York Times article, um, to like have the, like, cause there was no real nuance in the conversation that was yeah, happening around it. You wrote an
0: op-ed for the, for the times. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's no, there's no real nuance happening around the conversation. And, and to this day, I, I don't, I don't really have any bad feelings about any of it. You know, like, I think the, the students thought they were doing what uh, they thought was best. If I could go back and like, you guys are fucking dumb, <laughs> you know, <laughs> point blank. That's what I would say. Like you, you don't understand what you're doing. I tried to be articulate about it. My regret is I wasn't funnier in the moment and, uh, funnier just on stage. Cause then maybe it would have gotten different. But, um, outside of that, it was like, I didn't, I, I knew what the people's instinct was going to be, which was make it a bigger deal than it was. Um, and try to, make it about you know cancel culture and all this shit going on but it was really hard to make it about cancel culture when cancel culture when jamal khashoggi had just been murdered you know like it's like uh, am i being canceled or am i is my career that hasn't really taken off just still gonna be here you know like like is yeah well and you got more attention
0: and sort of attention for that than anything else up to that point so that's kind of the opposite of cancel culture in some ways yeah
1: i i I definitely lost some college gigs um i definitely also had an attitude about people email like i think uh people some school at michigan emailed me saying hey do you think it's still a good idea for you to come to our show if uh this has having had this happen to you and i remember just responding like tipsy like one like they sent me like a whole paragraph like two paragraphs and i was like yeah, it's fine. <laughs> like, why? Why <laughs> yeah. would why would it be a big deal?
0: There's sort of a phenomenon that I feel like happens with some of these things, where you get, uh, you know, criticized from the left, or you feel like you're being pushed in that direction, and then you kind of turn a little harder and, and sort of embrace that that side of it. And sort of, you know, if you had gone on Tucker Carlson or sort of become a a spokesperson for that, I mean, were you worried about that at all, or about sort of becoming a hero of the of the right?
1: That was a thousand percent, uh, uh, in my head. Like I'm pretty centrist politically and just emotionally and whatever it is. Like I did not want to be a living martyr for anybody, whether it be Breitbart or Tucker or any other kind of right leaning, uh, group or institution that wants it to make a mountain out of a molehill, you know? Um, and I also didn't want to acquiesce to you know there was other comedians or quote-unquote open micers and i won't name names but people who were like oh he should have prepared prepared and uh he should have known what he was going into and blah 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 i'm like i i did exactly the comedy that i've known for um and had people seen me before uh they would have seen that that was a bit that i had done uh and grant like the bit that got me in trouble was a bit that I hadn't done in, you know, years, but I was trying to cobble together another hour for all the road dates that I had coming up and in structuring the set, I oh, this joke works in this area. Let me put it in. And lo and behold, that's the one that got me a lot of trouble. But getting away from uh, what we're talking about, like I didn't want to acquiesce and say, yeah, you know, I fucked up. Like I should have known what I was doing. Like I did know what I was doing uh this it, it didn't feel like anything out of the norm for me to say what i had said and i thought i knew my material well enough to be like it like this not a, a racist or homophobic or anything kind of joke it was it's just what it is um and it's irreverent and silly and i can see why you would take it as kind of offensive but it's not that at all it took me a while but i learned from febreze it's a gay black dude I thought, what can i learn from febreze I was like, oh, this is
0: this is how I figured out that being gay can't be a choice. Because no one would choose to be gay if they're already black.
1: I'm not wrong. No one's doubling down on hardship. No black dude ever wakes up, looks in the mirror and thinks, you know what, this black shit, too easy. <laughs> I'm gonna put on a Madonna halter top and some Jordans that make some Indian dudes real uncomfortable. That's never happened before. You guys get tense on the weirdest things. That's a strong joke. I know it very much, and y'all better get on board because the rest of this is pretty intense. And I already got paid, so this don't really matter. (laughs) A most offensive part is the tag when I say the only person that uh, who chooses to be gay every day is Mike Pence. Like that—that is homophobic in a way, right? Like that's me (laughs) saying, that's me kind of outing someone who may or may not be gay and, and making fun of that. That I know is offensive. <laughs> that that was not what they took umbrage with, you know? Um, and so I didn't want to play either way. Like I wanted to stay as true to, as possible to who I am and, and my material and, and my beliefs, you know?
0: I did see that pretty recently you uh, you kind of called out Tucker Carlson for including a clip of you in his death of comedy documentary.
1: Mm-hmm. I did, did you- see the documentary. Um, I know why, I know that they took the clip from Rogan, uh, because had they emailed me or contacted me, I definitely would have said no. Um, and I think, you know, it's almost like Rogan stuff is almost like too public to not just take willy nilly. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, it's the most listened to most watched shit there is. So it's basically public. Um, again, like I, ha- I had the same Sentiment that I did then that I do now about people trying to hype this idea that comedy is dying and that you can't say anything that you want or whatever the hell it is. It's like I, don't, I can't even I don't know how these people sustain the argument when like there's right wing millionaire podcasts, you know, there's there's people who are fully bona fide right wingers going on like national tours and selling out. Like, I don't what is dead? What what are you talking about is that's <laughs> not that's not getting what you want it to get. Sure, it's like harder to be mainstream and, and like be a worldwide phenomenon, but that's not because of comedy. That's just the way the business is going. Everything's become more stratified and nitrified, and you just find the people you want to talk to. It becomes a lot harder to be a very broad comedian. But last I checked, like Chappelle is still selling arenas out. Uh, you know, so I, if, if that's canceled, then cancel me shit, (laughs) (laughs) you know?
0: Well, this is stuff that's been going on for a lot longer than people realize, I think, because when I saw your story about Columbia, I immediately thought about, um, something that happened to me when I was at, uh, Columbia, uh, for undergrad, um, probably my freshman ish year, uh, we had Patrice O'Neill come and perform and, I thought it was pretty great, but there were uh, there were definitely some walkouts, and uh, there were some. He, <laughs> no one cut his mic, but uh, there were some some people who were upset. So that that was uh, about twenty years ago. So this stuff that is, is this Stuff's been going on for a long time.
1: Oh, I'm a, I'm a good company then, man. Yeah, I thought that I might mean, make you feel better. <laughs> oh, that definitely does. Oh, granted, Patrice is a lot harder to storm on stage and take a mic from. Yeah, uh. <laughs>
0: and his and his jokes were a lot harder than yours.
1: Yeah, yeah, but. Man, that's crazy. I wish there was tape of that. That would be fucking awesome. Yes. I mean, that's cool. That makes me feel good for sure. Also, uh, you know, Iranian president <laughs> it was on stage there at some point. So shout out to shout out to me, Patrice and what was his name? Adminijad or whatever. Fuck, I forget his name, but
0: that's funny. Um, So now it's time for our segment uh, that we end the show with called The First Laugh. So I'm going to run through some of these questions about first in your life uh, around comedy, Uh, starting with the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up.
1: Chopping Broccoli by Dana Carvey is the first piece of stand-up that I remember uh, laughing at. I wish I could remember the bit fully. I wish I could, but I just remember him at a piano going crazy singing Chopping Broccoli. And, Anyone who uh, hasn't uh, seen it can, can
0: definitely find it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's George Bush and president, uh, <laughs> George Bush impression. Like that was, I remember, I remember those distinctly as like guffaw moments. And then my childhood was like, you know, whose line is it anyway? And uh, T.J. Friday and all that kind of stuff. But stand up wise, yeah, definitely Dana Carby. Do
0: you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you could make other people laugh?
1: As a comedian, no, like I don't remember the first time, like what made me think I should do
0: or even just as a as a growing up or or just having the feeling that you that you had the ability to make people laugh.
1: I say this bit in uh, my my first special in Thank You China, and it's a true story though of one time my grandpa was was disciplining me and there was a there's a classic Gujarati phrase which which goes Um um Taruma atutara which translates to I'll put your head between your ears and, you know, I'll set your head straight basically. But literally it means I'll put your head between your ears. And I was about to get my ass whooped. I was like, it's already there. You know, thank (laughs) you. It's it's already there, bro. And he started laughing and I ran away. And I just remember that was a very formative thing subconsciously. I didn't think then like, oh man, I'm going to, I'm the fucking funny guy. I just remember thinking, man, it's good. Comedy is (laughs) great. I'm going to try to be a sarcastic and, uh uh observant as possible. Um, yeah, and it I can save in, you in a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I I think a lot of it was in in high school when at like uh cafeteria when we were all eating with those big round tables and I had a bunch of older cousins who I would get to sit with and and their older peers and in a, in a way to like ingratiate myself with them, I would just like crack on everybody and say stupid things and be sarcastic and be a wise ass and remember making the table laugh and thinking, oh, man, this is cool. Like, this feels good. Um, I was definitely mean at that table and I regret that because I definitely made a few people upset. But um, I remember thinking, OK, I, I enjoy making people laugh at that point.
0: What about once you started doing stand-up? Do you remember the first joke that you felt really good about that really worked on stage that, that you felt like, oh, I might have something here?
1: Uh, I used to, <laughs> I would think I would, I went through a lot of phases in my, in my comedy writing, um, and, you know, still evolving, but. I remember the first thing I ever felt really good about was probably like a year in. I have this joke about going to McDonald's. Um, my chick, my chicken nugget arbitrage joke. Uh, I'm not sure if you know it and if you do, I'd be very surprised, but <laughs> it, it's a, uh, it's a joke. Um, and it's again, a true story for the most part about, I was drunk one night, went to McDonald's and, uh, I was looking at the menu. I wanted like 20 nuggets, but they had a, they had a, uh, a five piece for a dollar, but a 20 piece was like eight bucks. So like if you get five, four pieces uh, or four or five pieces, that's five bucks for 20 nuggets, or you could get eight nugget or 20 nuggets for $8 if you order them all together. So I went to uh, uh, those two lines at McDonald's. I went to one line said, Hey, uh, I need a, I need five piece. I need four or five piece nuggets in a 20 piece box paid $5. Go to the back of the second line. Pulled out a hair, put it in the box, went to the front of the line, said, hey, there's a hair in my 20-piece chicken nugget. I need my $8.79 <laughs> back, please. I get uh, my eight seventy-nine, order five four-piece chicken nuggets, pocket $3.79, and make it rain. Barbecue sauce all the way home. And I remember that being like my first full bit. You know what I mean? Like I had jokes.
0: Yeah, it was more that than was my a first,
1: line. Like, that was my first full thing, you know, like beginning, punches in between, end tag like it was
0: yeah and there's lots of math in there which is great
1: yes <laughs> that was that was one of the jokes it's like I'm never too drunk to do math you know and it's <laughs> subtly jet you know making the Indians are good at math joke without actually having to say it you know yeah
0: that's good what about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes uh, someone who you just really looked up to in the comedy world and what it was like to meet them I'm sure you met a lot of people at the cellar early on
1: uh I didn't get passed at the cellar until after I had the uh uh Chris Rock job I think that definitely helped me one of my, my one of my uh fellow comics friends not Chris recommended me to the to the show I mean to the to the seller like after that because we just saw each other in the streets and she had word that I'd written for him and all that but uh the first I think one of the first comedy idols I ever met was Russell Peters um and that was just a surreal experience, you know, because he was probably the second or third stand up I'd ever watched um, video of. You know, it was Dana Carvey's like that special, then Bigger and Blacker by Chris Rock. And then uh, I don't even know the name of the YouTube special that made Russell famous, but it was, you know, he was like the OG YouTube guy that got blew up off of YouTube back in 04. And that was, while I was at NYU uh my freshman year in 04 my there was only one other indian on my floor he calls me into his room into into his dorms like yo we got to watch this and we watched russell peters and fucking died sent it to our parents like it was great it was like that level of like oh my this is insane and then i you know fast forward a few years um I, I, i wish i could remember how and when i met russell um, I want to say it was through our friend Trayvon Free, who I had met Trayvon is a writer and producer Academy Award winner and all that now. Um, but he, he knew Trayvon, uh, somehow. And I asked Trayvon to help me get a guest spot on a show Russell was doing at, at Levity Live, um, in West Nyack, New York. And so I, I, I want to say that's when I met him first. At least I remember that being like one of our first few interactions. And that was just like such a cool experience cause he was so nice and fun, like nice in a way. Like I grew up with 16 first cousins and nice to me is like, we shit on each other all the time. And that's yeah. how we know we love each other. <laughs> and Russell was that same kind of vibe of like kind of snappy and all that. And that was like super cool to be around. Um, I don't get starstruck. Uh, I'm not bragging about it. It's just my lack of uh, enjoyment in life in general. <laughs> but, uh, but with Russell, it was like, man, that's crazy. Uh, and now I could text him, and and you know he's got me, at, got me at shows, helped me get stage time, given my family tickets. Just super cool.
0: Very cool. Finally, is there a story or memory from your career that really makes you laugh now, but was not funny when it happened?
1: Uh, a thousand percent. Uh, there's a billion of those. Um, I remember. I think one of my first ones uh, uh, was auditioning for uh, JFL New Faces. the now uh uh in front of the now um disgraced uh jeff singer uh, who finally had his stupid hat removed and you know i I don't normally like pissing on a grave but fuck it um it was it was the jfl audition my i think first time or second time and it was at the creek in the cave and it was at in front of like you know a hundred people who i thought were my friends (laughs) and uh just bombing like the only laugh I got was uh saying how badly I was bombing like I like no I like, the joke that got a laugh was normally you plan you time these things out to include laughs but that was a foolish mistake and that got a fucking <laughs> that got a huge laugh um and I look back at that now like god damn I'd sweated those things so much how important how important I thought they were um and all that and you know and and it's important for people who are going through it at the time for sure but I look back and like man what a dumb thing I just remember texting my I remember getting a text from my friend Kevin Barnett like afterwards uh and just saying damn (laughs) (laughs) sweating (laughs) like I just remember like I look back at that now and laugh, but at the time I felt so bad about all of it. Like, man, am I funny? And then, yes, I I was told I was funny by Chris Rock like two months later. So,
0: yeah, that helps. Thank you so much for doing this. And i I hear you're you're about to go on tour or announce something coming up.
1: I am going on tour, uh, my theater tour called Fast and Loose, uh, launches June twelfth. Tickets will be fully on sale June sixteenth. I'm going. Everywhere, you know, 42 cities in about three months, uh, uh, because my agent does not respect my work-life balance. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, I'll be going from London, Cleveland, you know, two shows at Warner theater in DC, uh, and then concluding, uh, you know, a bunch of other cities in between and concluding in, uh, at the theater at Madison square garden on December 30th. Oh, nice. That's Uh, huge. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not the arena.
0: Not the uh, arena. You know,
1: it's, <laughs> it's still 6,000 seats, which is, you know, a little yeah. small, but so no, no be... <laughs> bad
0: seats in the house. That's good.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's gone. I'm, I'm very excited. Um, this will be my third tour in, in three years. Um, and I, I can't wait. This is gonna be on purpose, very different, um, than the other ones I've done, you know, uh, in the sense that it's called fast and loose because that's how I'm going to keep it. Uh, you know, I, I've got a i've got a bunch of tricks in my bag and i want to utilize all of them uh i think i've really flexed the writing meticulously uh muscle and now it's time to flex the uh fuck around and find out muscle
0: (laughs) sounds great uh thanks so much man it's been great talking with you
1: thank you so much you too i appreciate your time and uh uh, stay up yep
0: All right, thanks again to Nimesh Patel for joining me on this episode. You can watch his latest stand-up special, Lucky Lefty, or I Lost My Right Nut and All I Got Was This Stupid Special, for free right now on YouTube. And you can get tickets for his national tour at FindingNimesh.com. We'll put a link to both in the description for this episode as well. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.